0: Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, when time allots, uh, if the message is short enough in our current study, we'll throw some Proverbs in there. So today, uh, if you like the Proverbs, we're going to start with Proverbs 11 and then jump back to 1 Corinthians. So Proverbs 11, starting with verse 16. It says, a gracious woman retains honor, but ruthless men retain riches. If you stack up them side to side, we see that honor is a greater attribute than riches. Verse 17, the merciful man does good for his own soul, but he who is cruel troubles his own flesh. So the merciful man um, is loving and merciful to others, and as a byproduct, uh, he gets a benefit. Now, the cruel man is cruel to others, and as a byproduct to that, he troubles his own uh, flesh. Verse 19, or verse 18, The wicked man does deceptive work, but to him who sows righteousness will be a sure reward. The wicked man looks for temporal or fleeting pleasures through deceit, but the righteous, we know, will reap eternal rewards. 19, as righteousness leads to life, So he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. There's really two types of people in the world. Those who are righteous in the sense they're reconciled to God, right? Through Jesus Christ, we know. And the rebellious and the wicked find death and ultimate judgment. You see really just a common theme through these eight or so Proverbs. And the question today is, you know, the Proverbs are drawing a very sharp dichotomy. And it really sets up the world into two camps. And the question is, which camp do we desire to be in? If you're not familiar with the Bible, you may not be sure. But the Bible says that you can have eternal life. You can be on the side of the righteous. You just have to give your heart to the Lord. Trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. As we continue, verse 20, those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, but such as are blameless in their ways are his delight. And when the Lord sees us, how does he see us? Does he see us as an abomination or a delight? Again, it depends on us, that choice that we make to be reconciled back to him as sinners. Verse 21, Though they join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished, but the posterity of the righteous will be delivered. The wicked, again, are eventually dealt with. And sometimes we cry out, as the Old Testament writers did, Lord, how long will you judge this wickedness and this evil? It's coming. The Bible is clear on that. We have to trust God. So the righteous will eventually prosper. Verse 22. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. Kind of humorous there. (laughs) You know, the gold ring is so small compared to the entire pig. So basically it's a picture of beauty being wasted, in a sense. And listen, this can apply to a man or a woman. Someone who, man or woman, has just beautiful outward features. And then they open their mouth, and it's filled with shallowness. It's, it's filled with materialism. It's filled with um, you know, carnality, right? And basically it, it's a shame. It's like a gold ring in a swine's snout in a sense. In verse 23, it says the desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. And the righteous have an overriding desire to please God. Now some may say, well, gee, I'm a new believer and I'm still sinning. But the difference is your desire is to please God, right? Jesus is our standard. He he set a very high bar, and we're always looking to attain that on this side of eternity. But the wicked, they're only going to get wrath in the judgment. Now, let's fast forward about 1,000 years. Let's go into the New Testament, past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians 11. We saw the last time that there were Christian liberty issues regarding to personal liberty and be careful of um, falling away like many of the children of Israel did and ending really with whatever we do as believers, we do all to the glory of the Lord. And today we're going to see disorder, distraction, uh, issues in the public assembly, the church assembly, and really what the underlying threat is. There's going to be, as we read it, a surface issue. But as always with the Apostle Paul, there's a deeper, richer thread of uh, spiritual truth underlying that. Verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Now, this is technically in chapter 10. We know that chapter divisions came hundreds of years later after the Bible was codified. But the word for imitate in the Greek is mimetes, where in the English we get the word mimic from. And you know, should we say that the apostle Paul is being a braggart here? Imitate me. No, we're not. See, he was saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You know, don't follow the bad habits of folks or bad behavior or, and I've seen this, people say, well, they're hypocrites, so therefore I'm not going to follow the Lord. No, that's not, God's not going to use that. He's not going to allow you to use that as an excuse. But imitate me as I imitate Christ. If we were discipling someone or we were mentoring someone, could we say with a clear conscience, folks, for the most part of our lives to that person, Mit, just whatever I do, you do. And that's a, a good question that we need to ask ourselves. We deal with neighbors. We deal with coworkers. They may think you're a Christian, know you're a Christian. We deal with um, maybe new believers, Right? And the point is, and the question is, can we say, as we look in the mirror, my life as a whole, imitate me? And as Christians, we need to hold up that mirror often and take a look at ourselves. And this book is a mirror as we look into it. Do we measure up to a person in Christ that can say, imitate me? It's a good question. Verse 2, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. See, the Corinthian church mostly kept the truth. They mostly kept the foundations. But the Corinthian church had a lot of problems, especially 1 Corinthians, we see that. However, if they didn't keep the traditions, if they didn't follow the true gospel, if they didn't um, see the principles, the biblical principles that the Apostle Paul laid down, that church would have just blown up. It would have imploded. It would have disintegrated. So even with all the problems in the Corinthian church, there was a good remnant. There was a good thread there. There was a good foundation that the Apostle Paul could work with. And we'll see in Second Corinthians that they cleaned it up a lot, right? And they, and they became thriving. Okay, verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays will prophesies with her head uncovered, This honors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason... and The woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as the woman was from the man, even so, man is also through the woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. It's a good thing that one wasn't full. Uh, Verse 3 through 16. Now, we might be surprised to learn that what we think the Apostle Paul is saying is different than what the Apostle Paul is actually saying. Okay? And what we have to do is the elucidation lies in the cultural and historical aspects um, that the Apostle Paul's dealing with first. Back then, women had, there was a, a clear differentiation in the sexes based on hairstyle in Corinth. All right? The women had, for the most part, long hair, and they would wear a shawl or a head covering, and the men would have short hair. Now, it's interesting because as Americans, we don't really observe that. And as Americans, sometimes we become egocentric. See, if you go out into most of the world, a lot of those customs are still prevailing. All right? Now, to give you a little background, which will help you understand what the Apostle Paul is saying, we have to go into history. In Numbers 5 in the Old Testament, right, one of the punishments uh, for an adulterous woman was to have her head shaved. Now, fast forward to the Hellenistic culture, the Greeks. The pagan high priestess, when she would do her pagan activities, she would you know, have, she would flout those, those customs, no head covering, shorter hair. And the last point, which really is gonna hit the nail on the head, is the Greek temples, right? They had the temple to Apollo, they had the temple to Aphrodite, and the temple to Aphrodite boasted 1,000 female prostitutes. Now, the way that the woman or the prostitutes would distinguish themselves from the rest of the women in society was to have no head coverings and very short hair. So when we go into history, we kind of understand what Paul is talking about here. And with the short hair, the woman would be signaling any men in the city that she was available for a transaction. Now it should be noted too, that when men would take a Nazarite vow, there were some exceptions, they would let their hair grow long. That was one of the ways you could recognize a man who was taking a a Nazarite vow. And a lot of these issues, see, I don't believe that this is a sin issue. This is an indigenous issue to Corinth, okay? There was particular issues in Corinth that had to be dealt with, but we can still take the message and use it in modern-day America. And listen, I don't want to get caught up in splitting hairs at this point, so let's continue to move on here. All right, anybody paying attention? (laughs) Okay. So what you have is this nice Christian Corinthian girl exercising her freedom in Christ. We've talked about this. She goes out into the the, um, you know, the, area, and she, you know, I don't have to wear a head covering, grow my hair short. Well, unfortunately now, she's going to be taken for a woman of loose morals, and that's not the example that they want to set. Now, here's the irony. Some will read this, not knowing the scripture, not knowing the background, and say, oh, they're the Bible sexist. But the Apostle Paul is actually looking out for these uh, Corinthian women, in a sense. In Christianity, women had freedom. Okay? If you look at the, um, the, at the time, the Jewish faith, it became dominated by males. If you looked at the Greek faith all right, and their polytheism, um, women had freedoms, but unfortunately the faith used them in a sexual way. When Christianity came, it truly empowered women. You could now have deaconesses in the church. You could have prophetesses in the church. You could have women as teachers and leaders in many capacities. But moving too fast could have caused a cultural catastrophe and the message of the gospel would have been lost. Now let's just talk about America for a little bit. In the 60s, most of the norms of society were changed. There was really a a cultural revolution, right? And hair coverings, head coverings and hair lengths really don't mean much in our society. So that's why we have to take you back about 1900 years to explain the the sign of the times. So we have freedom in Christ, right? But basically, he's saying, you're not sinning by doing this. But what type of message is it sending? We do all for the glory of God. We read that last Sunday. Now, we could have, listen, we're all free in Christ here, men, women, doesn't matter we could radically change our appearance i could look at the youth and see you know the piercings right they got them through their eyebrows and their nose and they have like studs on their foreheads they have these things that actually screw into their skulls you know it's kind of weird but it's interesting and i could say you know what i'm going to get into piercings right nothing sinful about it come in on sunday and just have just pierced all over the place i'm not i'm not sinning right but i'm going to lose some of you if i go out and try to preach the gospel it's going to be um, something that I want to do, not sinful, but I'm going to lose some people in the process. So you see a good example in modern times of something that's not sinful, but a radical change in appearance where you end up losing the message of the gospel. And that's why we restrain ourselves for the glory of God and to save souls. right? So let's just address some specifics here. Another issue which really ties into it is authority and chain of command, so to speak. You could have a general who's a four-star general, and everyone under him has to follow that general's orders. However, the private, the sergeant, the colonel could be better men morally than the general, but they still submit themselves to the general's chain of command. And the Corinthian church had an issue with with order. They had an issue with um, chain of command. And we see this in the gifts of the spirits, too, which we'll cover next Sunday. So he says, the head of the woman is man, The head of the man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. This brings up the question that people ask. Does God favor men more? (laughs) I see some smirks. (laughs) Um, Is woman inferior to a man? Well, if that was the case, then Christ was inferior to the Father. Because when he was on the earth, he said, I do nothing unless the Father tells me. I've come to do the will of my Father. But Christ had the same godness, so to speak. He was as fully God as God the Father right? Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So no, the woman is not imperfect to the man. Yeah, the man came first and the woman came from the man, but the animals and the earth and everything else came before the man. So does that mean that man is secondary or not as important as the animals and the earth? No. God told him and the woman to subdue the earth, right? To have that authority over the earth. And the other point that he makes is that yes, woman came from the man originally, but all men now come from a woman. Every man sitting here, including myself, had a mom. So every man was birthed by his mother. So everything kind of equals out at the end. Verse 10, he says, the women should have a symbol of authority over their head because of the angels. Now we know that the angels are present during worship. We know that the angels stand before the throne and worship God. We know that there's a spiritual realm that goes on around us where there's angels and bad angels and fighting all the time as a spiritual warfare, and one day we'll actually our eyes will be open to see that. But the angels, the good angels, kept their order and kept their chain of command, and as they see things go on in the church, they like that order because God likes that order. The ones who rebelled, the rebellious angels who take, Satan took with them, disobeyed God, disobeyed the order, uh, wanted positions that weren't available to them, and we know what happens to them. They're going to be judged at the end. And all they know is rebellion and anarchy. So we know that God likes order. He's the God of order. Order promotes peace and not chaos. And the truth of the matter is, we're all subject to someone, right? You ever meet somebody who's in their 50s and 60s or later, and they still haven't grown up. They're still bucking any authority. I'm nobody's boy. Nobody can tell me what to do. They, they, they buck authority. They buck those that are over them. They're always fighting with their bosses. If, if there's any time there's an authority position over them, they have a problem with that. But we're all subject to someone. And the bottom line is, uh, we're all subject to God. And even someone who's rebellious against the Lord, doesn't want to come to Christ, eventually they will stand in the judgment. Now, I look at my own life. I'm, I'm probably the most subject person to some type of authority out of this whole place. I'm subject to Christ. I'm subject to my church board. As a nonprofit organization, I'm subject to the federal government. And then when I go to work, I'm subject to everyone who's a sergeant and above, all the way up to the chief of police, right? So we're all subject to someone or some type of authority. And that's important to understand. Ephesians 5 tells us that the wife is submissive to her husband as unto the Lord. Now that word hupotasso in the Greek is a military term. That means that the woman has an authority, but she's also in the chain of command, um, the husband is, is her head, in a sense. Now, this is interesting, because what we also know is that, and we, we talk about this at weddings, and I try to do a biblical wedding, and it's very interesting to see the, the progression. But the husband cannot ask his wife or make his wife do anything that's unbiblical. She's subject to him as unto the Lord, as Christ is his covering, right? Now, let's take this to Corinth, any of the wives who were engaged in this type of practice, either um, not wearing a head covering or, you know, doing this, flouting their Christian liberty, uh, they were dishonoring their church, they were dishonoring their community, and they were dishonoring their families. And the godly husband has two roles. We could look at Corinth and we could look at today. A godly husband, a man who submitted to Christ, has two roles. Number one, to set the tone and direction of his family. You know, he could have said, hey, honey, you know, maybe you should put the shawl over your head today before we go to our church because, because of these issues. So he sets a tone he's supposed to, right? A, a leadership tone. But at the same time, he's also her covering in a sense that he protects her. And there are husbands out there that, um, you know, they get married and their wives are kind of, they're on their own. They don't protect them. They don't cover them. They don't defend them when need be. And that's a problem. So that husband has to have two roles. And I would just say this to any young man who's looking to get married, if you can't provide that dual role, then you need to stay in the Lord a little bit more before you say, I do. Now, as an aberration, um, if you look at uh, husbands who shirk their responsibility role, the Bible says this in Genesis 3, that the wife will fill that leadership void and she'll actually do a good job. However, if a husband continually subjects his wife to leadership pressures, she will eventually resent him over time. And this is, that's a fact. Now, i got to tell you this. On a personal level, my wife is one of the strongest women I've ever met physically, mentally, and spiritually. But she still expects me to take a leadership role. She does not want me to subject her to the pressures okay? that the family has to face in our, in our going forwards. So my wife will definitely hold me accountable if she thinks for a moment I lapse in leadership. A godly woman wants a strong man, a good leader, to lead the home because she does look for that covering as well. So you, you, st- you start to understand this a little bit. Now, you can look at cultural things um, even today. A friend of mine is a missionary in, in one of the countries in Africa, and he said that, you know, in these villages, they, they're set in their ways. He said that uh, the men will sit under this big shade tree, right?, and they'll chew tobacco, and they'll talk, and they'll joke. And you see the women go by, and they're doing all the work. they got the kids with them. they got the, you know, the big things on their head, and they're you know, going to the well to fill up the water. And he has to teach them and break through that cultural barrier and teach them, your wife is the weaker vessel. He says it's very difficult, but it's something that they need to learn because of the Scripture, right? Now let's just give an application here, 2009. Basically, this is reverence in public worship and gatherings for both men and women. The message, right, is to promote Christ. The message is the message of salvation, the message of the gospel. And we have to weigh the gospel message with any freedoms we might have. And if they're in competition, the gospel has to win. Let me give you an example. Let's say one of our wonderful godly christian sisters from our fellowship goes to the middle east you know takes a plane goes to visit another church and they wear shorts and a sleeveless shirt because it's hot there well we see that all the time in america in the summer i guarantee you in certain cultures they will not only be shunned by the christian men but they'll be shunned by the christian ladies as well and the message of the gospel is completely lost now by the same token let me use myself as as an example let's say I'm invited to speak at a very conservative, traditional church in New Jersey, right? And, you know, I don't want to wear the suit and tie. It's the summertime. I want to go in shorts, right? Some, especially Calvary pastors, they'll wear the shorts and the, the flowered shirt, right? I go into one of these traditional churches looking like that, I guarantee they won't hear anything that I have to say. It's a cultural issue, right? In the bulletin, it might as well say under message, the pastor wore shorts, because that's all anyone's going to remember, Right? So you understand where we're going with this. Uh when a friend of mine passed away a few months ago, we performed the or officiated the funeral service at another church. And uh I talked to the pastor. He gave me a whole list of things that I need to do and not to do. They weren't unbiblical, but he's basically saying, If you want to use my home, this is the even though I'm not gonna be there and our folks aren't gonna be there, this is the way I want you to do it. Now I could say, Hey bro. I'm free in Christ, man, and have an argument with him, and the funeral doesn't get done. Or I could just say, no problem, brother, I will do that. And I humbled myself, and I submitted it to his authority and his request to me. Right, so you see where this is going. So, you know, hair coverings and, and you know hairs and coverings and all that are really not the issue. The issue is being sensitive to the impression we make on the communities we're trying to save. Otherwise, folks, it's all about me, if you really think about it. My rights, my benefits, and that's what we see in America. You know, well, the government can't do this. I have the right to do this. Or, you know, I'm entitled to this benefit. Or, um, you know, I've served my time, so this is what I need. This is what I should get. And sometimes we have to lay aside our our rights to uh, serve the Lord and get the gospel message across. Verse 17, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worst. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Second problem in the church of Corinth in chapter 11 was the Corinthians not regarding the taking of the Lord's Supper or communion. In this particular instance, and there were other problems with divisions, you know, they had their favorite pastors, and they would have their little factions about who they liked better, Peter, Paul, whoever. Um, In this instance, this was a class issue. Now, again, understanding the culture at the time, there were many slaves in the Grecian, well, it was the Roman Empire, but uh, there would often be that slaves that came to Christ, and they would at some point have some liberties and be able to go to church services, or they would come with their master. It was very unusual for us to understand. And what happened was they would have their love feasts or their agape feasts, and it would be followed by the Lord's Supper or communion. So in other words, sort of like our potlucks, right? People would get together, everybody would bring something, they would share the meals, they would break bread, and then they would um, you know, participate in communion afterwards. Well, this, this kind of went awry. Three major problems. Number one, the ones who were maybe wealthier, uh... brought the food i suppose and uh... they didn't share with those who you know maybe the slaves that was their only chance to get a good meal uh... and they you know it was bad enough they were oppressed by society but now they come into church and they're hungry they're not being shared with right I'm not, I'm not gonna eat with that person this isn't the church the second part was they ate with their own cliques right people got together again we see the factions in the beginning we see the factions now these little cliques that happen and, uh, you know, you're not my clique, so you can't eat with me. And the third point was, well, I guess some of them had too much communion wine, and they got drunk. So this, this was a real issue here. I suppose if we could look at the United States or look at 2009 and uh, maybe even in our fellowship to give you an example. Let's say, inappropriate, appropriate, we're having a potluck on November 1st. Everybody comes. Now, what happens is, and this is hopefully doesn't happen, some don't, don't bring anything but then go up for seconds. And then by the time the ushers and those who are serving get to eat, there's nothing left, right? So you can see a modern application. Now I just scared everybody, and on November 1st, no one's going to be the first one online. You heard what Pastor Joe said last week. <laughs> so, you know, they, weren't, they were just thinking of themselves. Again, the thread here is me. It's about me, right? Not regard for others, fellow brothers and sisters. And realize this, that the Lord's Supper was to be taken as a corporate event. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or are dead." For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So he goes more into the Lord's Supper and how we're supposed to regard the Lord's Supper or remembering uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, really what we're supposed to remember is Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his coming again. Now, some will say, well, what about his life? Jesus said, he was great that he did miracles and he healed people, but after Jesus died and went to heaven, people still got sick. They still got cancers. Uh, they still got demon possessed. So, D- Jesus did a great thing. He taught the word. But Jesus even said himself, I've come to the world. For this purpose, I've come into the world to die. So we remember his death, and that sounds kind of morbid, but what about his death that he died for our sins? It was a substitutionary death, and that's important because if he didn't die for our sins and he did all the miracles and maybe hung around for another 30 years and said, you know what, I don't feel like going to the cross. That's just going to be too painful for me. We'd all be in a lot of trouble right now. So we remember his death. We remember that he promised to rise again because it would make him a liar if he didn't, right? So he rose again. And also, we remember that he is to come again. Now, there are some Christians, believe it or not, that think, uh, oh, the second coming, the rapture, that's kind of weird. It's a little hokey. You can't call yourself a believer and not believe in Jesus' promise to come again. And some Christians will try to blend in with the world and kind of be afraid to talk about the whole coming again thing. We're going to be seen as separatists or fundamentalists. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus is coming again, don't we? Right? to set the record straight, to make things right, to usher in everlasting peace and prosperity. So eating in an unworthy manner is like defiling um, this whole thing about Jesus and his promise, right? And it'll bring about judgment. Verse 28, When we read this when we take communion. He says, let a man examine himself and then let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Let a man examine himself You see, God always allows for true repentance. Now listen, raise your hand. Who's really worthy here to take the Lord's Supper? Okay, good, you got it right. I'm not going to raise my hand. None of us are worthy of what Jesus did for us. However, we can make it worse by calling ourselves Christians and harboring um, deep resentments or deep sin issues and not confessing them towards the Lord. You know, life is a a daily um, event of messing up, falling down, and then getting back up asking the lord to help us up and to help us walk walk stronger the next time so whatever you're into whatever you've done you can repent you can take that moment to examine yourself an introspective look and ask for that true repentance so that we're not defiling the lord's supper right so no matter where you're at even if you're an unbeliever you can come to the cross today right? today is the day of salvation the bible says you can repent of your sins and start walking with the lord And verse 30, he says, many are weak and sick and have fallen asleep. Well, that was a euphemistic term to have died. That's what that means. Now, here's something that's interesting. When we read the book of Job, we look at Job and his friends, and we know that his friends were great in the beginning. They listened, and then they all started accusing Job. Well, you must have lost your family. You must be sick because you have some unconfessed sin in your life. And we all say, oh, Job's friends got it wrong. God even said his friends got it wrong. It it had nothing to do with that. And then we get into the mindset that sin never causes sickness. That's not true. That's the other extreme. Dave did a good job on Wednesday teaching about the extremes in Christianity and how uh, certain folks fall on one extreme or the other. There are times that persistent sin is 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 a cause of sickness. And sometimes we have to look at that in our lives and root it out. Be mindful that our behavior sometimes invites judgment and discipline from the Lord. Verse 31, he says, but if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But in the same letter we read before, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Apparent contradiction, no. The prior context was a greater judgment, right? Um, I don't even judge myself. I'm not even worthy to stand in judgment of myself. But in this meaning, and we've talked about this, we had a a sermon on, on judging and there's literally dozens of Greek words for judging and they have different nuances. Even in the English dictionary, if you look at the synonyms list, it's one of the longest for the word judge. So in this sense, he's saying we need to examine ourselves. If we judge ourselves, if we deal with ourselves and we repent and bring it before the Lord, it's good. Because now God doesn't have to deal with us. We've corrected it on our own. And we see that with our kids too, don't we? If they come forward and do the right thing and and, and show that they're making concerted effort uh, to change their behavior, well, we're going to be easier on them, and that's the way it should be. And God does that with us too. Verse thirty-two. But when we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord, that we may too, not be condemned with the that we may not be condemned with the world. If it gets to the point where the Lord has to deal with us, He will because He loves us. Hebrews 12 speaks about Christian discipline. And in the Bible, the writer of Hebrews says that uh if God loves us, he chastens us, he disciplines us. If he didn't love us, we would be illegitimate children and he wouldn't do anything. So there is a time if we don't see and we're that stiff-necked and we don't see our own hearts that the Lord has to deal with us. Sometimes it's time for discipline, the rod of correction from the Lord. Right? and the last two verses he says therefore my brethren when you come together eat wait for one another but if anyone is hungry let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment and the rest I will set in order when I come and this is love for both the Lord and each other now understand this that the Lord's Supper is interesting there's two facets to it communion it's personal and it's interpersonal it's personal you know when I'm When we do take the bread and take of the cup, uh, it's a personal thing. Wow, the Lord died for my sins. And in in that sense, those, you know, we're all me centered. It kind of works for us because it was a personal thing that God did for us, right? He loves us personally. But there's also another facet to it there's other people taking the Lord's Supper along with us. It's interpersonal, right? And in some fellowships, um, uh, and I've heard this. They'll say, you know, look into each other's eyes. And, and I think that's really neat to look at each other as we're handing out the elements. These are your brothers and sisters. It's interpersonal. We do it together as a group. And I think we're good at doing things personally. But as uh, especially American Christians, that interpersonal thing needs to be worked on. The church needs to be more co- cohesive. We can do the personal worship thing. But the interpersonal worship thing is just as important. Right? Get to know our brothers and sisters who we're going to be spending eternity with. The last thoughts on the Lord's Supper. Um, and I look at this as a fourfold uh, affliction that Jesus had to suffer. You know, fourfold. And I'll start with the easiest and get to the worst. Well, we all think, or, and I've heard this said, and you know, you've seen the movies, and they're driving the nails in, and boy, that must have been painful. Nobody likes pain. That must have been miserable. But I'm going to tell you, I believe that was the least of the four, you know, and not to be a little macabre, but they've done uh, research and they've done studies and uh, there was one lady who survived uh, like 25 stabbings and she said she felt the first two and the rest she didn't feel. It just was like, you know, she was deadened. There's chemical reactions that go into your body, there's endorphins that are released and, you know, pain eventually is controlled or it's tolerable at some point. So I don't think the pain was the worst of the crucifixion, although I wouldn't want to go through that, and none of us would. So you have the pain issue. Second point, death. God, for the first time, is going to experience death. I'm sure that was troublesome to the Lord. For all of eternity, past, he never had to go through death. He went through death for us because he loves us that much. So, hey, this was going to be a new thing for Jesus. I never died before, and he's going to die now. Now here's the, the worst two. Separation from the Father and bearing the sins of the world. And I've said this before. This is the first time and the last time in history during the crucifixion that God was separated from God. And that's really hard to wrap your mind around. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Son and God the Father at the first time, last time in all eternity are separated. And he had to bear the sins of the world. I think that was really one of the worst things. He who knew no sin, not familiar with sin, because he's God, became sin for us. That's pretty, you know, you need to ruminate on that. That's pretty intense. Now, what I find interesting is if we look for, again, a thread that flows through uh, both of these, and, you know, I, I was trying to think about how to put these together, and I thought of the love chapter, chapter 13, which we're going to read. And even those who are nominal believers or maybe not believers at all, they've heard the priest or a pastor or somebody read the love chapter at a wedding. And we get the misunderstanding that the love chapter stands by itself. Oh, that's a really cool chapter. We really like that to take it out and use it for our benefit. But the love chapter goes with everything. It's right kind of there in the middle of that letter. The truth is that the culmination of the entirety of Paul's writings to the Corinthian church had to do with love. So everything we've, we cover from uh, chapter 1 to chapter 12 and then to the end of the book and beyond, love is, is the, you know, looking forward and looking back. That chapter is very important. It has to do with everything. You know, Jesus said that you will know, those will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another and to love for the community that they were ministering to. And that was a lot of what the Apostle Paul was talking about. The underlying understanding is that if you really love those you're ministering to, you will limit yourself and you will not take rights that maybe you're entitled to. And if the Corinthians really loved each other in the church and loved their community, this first Corinthians probably would have been a lot shorter. There would have been a lot less correction because they would have gotten it. So I guess my question is, as american christians where do we stand on this and you know yeah okay it's all about me you've heard me say that before but i think that there's some things listen i say we i'm part of this too right we the whole we mentality is pervasive through our culture and it's something that it's it's timeless it never gets old because we all need to stop and look at ourselves and say is it all about me in my life or is it all to the glory of the lord my entitlements, my click, my schedule, my money, my personal happiness, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm entitled to that. Constitution says it. First John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loves us, we ought to love one another. So I guess my point, brothers and sisters, is as we look at the Lord's words, as we look at uh, the scriptures, if we look at the, uh, the writings of the New Testament and the Old Testament, I just would ask that we would pray and meditate on what we've read today, apply to our lives, and see how we can employ sacrificial love this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you.